Being quarantined in our homes, away from many, if not all, of our loved ones, is not a thing to celebrate. But it does afford us, despite real fears and discomfort, a great deal of time for meditation and reflection. Hopefully, God and Other Delicacies can be one of the ways in which you find a sliver of optimism in your day and the welcome warmth of connecting deeply with someone you've just met for the first time. Hello, everyone! Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Arsène Delay to the show. Arsène is a musician and performer who lives in and embodies her hometown of New Orleans, Louisiana. Arsène and I are old friends. We met while studying theater at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we shared our 20s in Los Angeles after she got her master's degree from California Institute of the Arts. She's performed all over, including her one-woman show at the Red Cat Theater at Walt Disney Concert Hall in L.A., but music has proved to be her most enduring passion. Since returning to New Orleans full-time, she's released two critically acclaimed albums, her solo record, Coming Home, and her most recent release, Blue Basso, with the Charlie Wooten Project. She's had her music featured on NCIS New Orleans, and she's part NOLA royalty, being the youngest vocalist in the beloved Boutet family. There's a lot to catch up on, there's a lot to learn, and we've only got an hour, so I better get started. Welcome to the show, Arsene! Nikki! Arsene, <laughs> how are you? It's so dang good to be talking to you. Oh, man. It's so good to hear your voice, bro. It's been like a few years, I feel like, right? When was the last time I saw you? You came down. I know that I came there with Andrea was the last time I saw you. Yeah, you and Andrea came down. I, I want to say it was maybe three. It was probably three, maybe four years ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it had to be before we we had my son. So it was over four years ago. Four or five. I mean, oh, that's yeah, how quickly it, was. it goes. It was over four years ago. Jesus, where does the time go? I know, man. I know. It's crazy. I wanted to mention, now that we jumped right into New Orleans, there's been a few times that I've gotten a chance to see you down there. One time was... It's one of my greatest, it's one of my favorite New Orleans memories was going with you over, it was back when I was shooting Mardi Gras, a movie that I did that never came out (laughs) and probably (laughs) rightfully so. And it was right after all those horrible, horrible floods that just decimated the city. And one of my buddies from the movie and I, you invited us over and we watched the Super Bowl at- Yep, at Bazinax. At Bazinax. And it was I have to say it's probably the greatest Super Bowl party I was ever. It was the one where Eli Manning's Giants beat the undefeated Patriots. And the Mannings are like this, they're beloved in New Orleans. they are definitely a beloved family dynasty down here in New Orleans for sure. I mean, I have memories of it, but now put it into like my adult brain context. What was Bazinax? Where was it? Why? I mean, it was like in somebody's house, but it was a bar and a restaurant. It was crazy. It was a neighborhood bar. It was a little watering hole neighborhood bar in the 7th Ward that my Aunt Chelsea owned, and my cousins, Kelly and Danielle, they worked the bar. I was back there working the bar that day, too. There's nothing fancy about it. That's the beautiful thing about the neighborhood dive bars around here is that it is a place to meet. It is a place to catch up with everybody in the neighborhood. I mean, the energy in that place was amazing. I definitely remember an old gentleman, someone that must have been of a grandfather age, who was dancing his ass off after the Super Bowl win. We were all just going crazy. And it felt, it was the great joy of knowing someone who 
who has family there. I got to go into an area I would have never been able or never known how to find. And even if I knew how to find it, probably wouldn't have gone without right. you. And then instead it was like, oh God, the essence of New Orleans that, man, I would have never gotten. And it's one of the reasons I love that memory so much. Well, yeah, it was a look into what our normal is. New Orleans normal is definitely much different than what the uh, status quo is it always has been. I think that's what's always fascinates folks about coming down here. Because on one hand, you can come down here and be sold the Zatarans version. <laughs> yeah. It's like, ah, French Quarter Benjamin. And there's that, sure. But then there's the other side of it. New Orleans isn't just this party place. It's also it's also a place where people have been born and raised and who live in the strongest sense of the word live. And they've been doing yeah, it Yeah, what do you centuries. mean by that? What do you mean by that? That's great. David Simon put it very well, and I'm totally going to butcher the paraphrase of the quote, but David Simon was uh, one of the creators of Treme, and I know him, and him and Eric Obermeyer have been longtime lovers of New Orleans, have been down here for ages and ages, and they were present at... One of the uh, jazz fest performances of uh, my uncle John, when he hopped the barriers in the middle of the performance in the WOZ tent and grabbed my grandmother and danced with her during the Treme song. He described it. He says it's just one of those magical moments that can only happen in New Orleans. And New Orleans is one of those places that is so good at being in the present. Mm. And it's true. It's true. I mean, I was there. I remember I was singing back up on stage and it was a beautiful moment that I always cherish because I believe that was actually the last jazz fest that my grandmother could attend. Wow. My uncle's got a great, something that he's always said that stuck with me. Don't bring flowers to the funeral, bring them to him while they can smell them while they're still living. Yeah, that's right. One of the things for me that was so extraordinary about that time. So I'm a white boy from white suburbs of Omaha, Nebraska. And the first time I saw a black family move into our parish, I think I was like seven or eight years old. I mean, outside of that, I'm not sure if I would have seen people that weren't white, like on TV, I guess, you know, maybe around town a little bit. I would say when I was in New Orleans, that was like one of the first times in my life that I lived in a place, I mean, I'd been in Los Angeles for a while, so it had been happening in Los Angeles, but Los Angeles can be pretty stratified. You can kind of, yeah, I mean, it's nothing like New Orleans. New Orleans was the first time I was ever in a place for an extended period of time where one, maybe I was oftentimes in the minority or it would be even hard to tell. It was the first time maybe in my life I really felt like I wasn't really seeing color. You're just so bombarded with color there, whether it's in the bright colors of, you know, the purples and yellows and greens, or just the brightness of the art and culture there, or just the total many shades of of the people that live there. And moments like going to Bazinax are kind of climactic moments in this experience for me where I felt like I was becoming an adult and understanding that I could access these places in my life that felt like cultural divides, but they weren't. Those are the false notions about cultural divide that we kind of sense, but that aren't real. You can walk in the door and 
yeah, you know, I had a friend that I wouldn't have gone in there if it wasn't for you. But, but since I went in there, it was like instant family. It felt like I was just accepted like anybody would be accepted. And it was the, it was just so beautiful to me. Well, I mean, and you were because you walked in with me. The thing is you walked in there by yourself. They probably look you up and down and be like, all right, is he a friend or a foe? Right, right. But you walked in with me and I'm trying to be like, oh, okay, if he's walking around with her, then yeah. Of course, there's that. But I think we're probably in a severe cultural shock and sensory overload because you you were born and raised in Nebraska. I mean, it's, it's pretty white bread there. I would, it's I, definitely... I would safely, I would safely <laughs> assume. It's definitely and, divided. You know, the city is very divided. Like, and when we were in Milwaukee, Milwaukee is incredibly culturally divided. It's actually the top five of most segregated cities in the country. Mm. And a lot of times people put these mental constructs of, oh, you can't go here, you can't go there. Now, and I would say this is a black person who's often, I mean, majority of the black people in America can, can agree with this, but I mean, as a black person in white spaces, I definitely experience on a regular, the microaggressions of like, what the fuck is she doing here? And I'm so accustomed to it that it doesn't phase me anymore. It's kind of like a boxer who's so used to getting hit that after a while they don't feel the punches. It's just like, ah, uh, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, I've I have definitely felt the disenfranchisement and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, if I'm walking in here, I have some shit to do, and I'm not going to let these assholes prevent me from getting whatever the hell I need to get done done. Right. Mm-hmm. But in your case, you were stepping out of those preconceived constructs of what that was. And having a completely different experience that you probably wouldn't have never had before. And in that, there are major growing pains, whether they feel good or don't, that can accompany that. And it's like, yeah, it's it's mind-blowing all of a sudden. You have now had a cultural experience that you didn't quite expect because people can get caught up in what their normal is. I mean, you can see that, especially in the tourist industry here. You know, you go in on Bourbon Street or something like that, they're catering to what people are comfortable with. But the minute that you leave the quarter, it's like, oh. And there's definitely a history in the quarter, too. But the industry, since our, our industry is majority tourism, people do heavily cater to what people are comfortable with. So there's always those packages. Oh yeah, we've gone to New Orleans and and a lot of people think New Orleans is just a quarter. And I'm like, there's an entire life. Mm-hmm. Remember, <laughs> this is one of the oldest cities in America. And and there's plenty to show for it. How is New Orleans right now? What is it like to be there now while this is happening and comparing it to the floods from the past? Well, I mean, look, first and foremost, people have used that analogy quite a bit, just like a Katrina. And I'm like, no, it's not because my feet are dry. Right. My feet are dry and I can be in my house. Right. And first and foremost, that right there, that's fine. New Orleanians, we're not novices to trauma. We are not novices to a collective communal trauma. This is not our first plague. This is definitely not our first storm. But it makes a world of difference when your feet are dry and you can be in your house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I will ever be able to communicate the gravitas of that, but just case in point last night, last night was, was pretty atrocious. We had these horrific line of storms that came in 
thundering and lightning, and it was one of those kinds of rains where it, it dropped 10 inches in mm. some places in a matter of hours. And when wow. you get that kind of unprecedented rainfall, and that short amount of time flooding happens, in some of the neighboring areas, people got one or two feet of water. Wow. There was barber shops on the North Shore and a nail salon that got water and they were supposed to be opening up today. They were supposed to be joining the phase one opening of that. And they ended up all night having to move water out of their businesses and assess their losses and stuff. I was watching that on the news last night and it's like, man, to have to deal with a flood issue and, and climate change on top of on top of a pandemic yeah. is um, not fun. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't sound fun. It's like, well, that's good and shitty. Mm-hmm. All right, life. What other kind of lemons you want to throw at us? Mm. But, I mean, all we can do is shake our heads and say a fucking chorus, and you just got to keep pushing, you know? And just keep keep moving forward. <laughs> Oh, Arsene. Well, this is good. Thank you for sharing that stuff. I'm sorry to hear about, look, you have a lot to share about this stuff. I New Orleans is a, a really extraordinary place for those people that haven't been there. I love knowing that you're there and knowing that how much you care about it and live it. I want to ask my breakfast question before we get into your deep life stuff. And then we have to take a break nearly immediately because we've already okay. been talking for so long. <laughs> so first, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? It's totally random. I had a handful of blueberries. Great. Two Popeye's biscuits with some turkey on them. Oh, all right. Good. Oh, man. You're like my wife then. She loves to eat savory first thing. It's crazy. She's just, she's up cooking last night's dinner right away. Yeah. The reason I have a handful of blueberries is because of quarantine. I have all the time in the world in my in my little urban garden in the back, and I have three blueberry bushes growing in a bathtub. So now in a bathtub it's season, yes, oh, in, in a twelve foot bathtub. <laughs> and now my mornings consist of me getting up early, feeding my dogs, and then going out there to fight the blue jays because those bastards like to go and get all the the, the good ones. I'm like, fuckers, I'm going to get you. (laughs) Fighting wildlife for fruit is just (laughs) such a losing battle. Like, oh, you bastards. (laughs) They're they're so much better at it. And they are so diligent. I was like, you bastard, I'm going to get you, I swear. So I have to go fight the birds for the blueberries. (laughs) That's funny. Arsene... Let's do it. Let's get into the meat of it. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Oh, my God. Um, I don't think I was ever introduced. I think I was indoctrinated. Um, Mm. I mean, I grew up a Southern Catholic, so church was, it was accepted. It's like, oh, this is is something that you do. And and that changed because now when I was six, I moved to Germany and the beautiful thing about living over there is that you could go, we went all over the place. We went to Spain, we went to Italy, we went to France. In many of those places, we also went to the cathedrals, the basilicas. And I don't know. I mean, I always associated God and divinity with with art and with those churches. 
even if you aren't religious, you walk in and you are in awe. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely in awe. And they are, they are such gorgeous places that bring, can bring such a sense of calm and peace over you anyhow. And so that was something that I often associated it with. Now, I began to question, like I, I definitely questioned religion. And I guess I questioned God too. I, I started questioning God and religion when I was in high school in the military and on military bases and stuff, you only had one chapel and you had different times when all the denominations would come in. Like, oh, so you kind right, of, of course it was like, oh, okay, this is the Catholic one. This is Baptist. This is this. Like, so everybody had their particular times on Sundays that they would go in, back and forth in there. And would they have now, like a different chaplain or priest on every military base representing that particular religion? Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yes. But the thing is, when I was in, I wouldn't say middle, well, no, this is elementary time frame. So I always say, I've sung, I've sung since the beginning of my time. Like I, there's pictures of me at three. Singing has definitely been a part of my life for a very, very long time. Music, music has always been a part of my life. And I think the first time that I went to a friend's house and didn't have to practice piano or anything like that, I was like, well, what do you mean? Because <laughs> that was something that was always very much a part of my daily. But I remember I started questioning around the high school time frame because for the most part, I had really, we had really great priests and stuff that we often work with and and they were all lovely and there was one who was just rotten and he was mean he was i actually ended up walking out of one of the uh the i was in cyo at that point i think the catholic youth organization where are you at this point what city i think it was in montana so we were stationed right we were stationed out of missile base in montana for a while and there was one priest he was like he was very strict. He would burn this kind of incense in in the mass that I was allergic to. And I used to sing in the choir with my mom. And I actually stopped singing in the choir with my mom when he would, when he kind of came because he would make a habit of it and it would just wreak havoc on my allergies, which would wreak havoc on my voice. And I remember one time he called us in for some special thing or whatever. And basically he was sitting there showing us these videos of how horrible abortions are. And I was even at in high school, I was very, very liberal in my views and very much so pro-choice because I was like, it's none of your goddamn business. And he was kind of trying to put the whole storm and drang on us of, well, this is what happens and you're going to go to hell and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, nah, I'm out of here. And I remember my parents being like, well, you know, you should give me a chance. And I was like, I did. And no, I'm not mm. doing this anymore. So... I'd stepped away, like I I actually stopped going to church for a while, and I almost didn't get confirmed, actually. But then I decided at the last minute to do so because I had made it. This is a funny story. I made a deal with God. (laughs) Oh, great. Good, good, good. Oh, Lord. It's such a shit show, Nick. So uh, (laughs) when I was in high school, I was with my lovely and incredibly entertaining and awesome hedonistic theater friends and we were all out being debaucherous and drinking and smoking weed one time and the cops uh came to our little hangout or our hideout <laughs> we were scattering so they were chasing after us and i remember jumping into some bushes and hiding and shit and i remember thinking oh my god if the cops don't catch me i swear i will lord i remember this <laughs> 
That is good. I was laying in the bushes in this weird contorted position, but I couldn't move because I didn't want to rustle the branches. And I remember seeing Lord Jesus. I'm like, all right, God, if I don't get caught, I will get confirmed. I swear to you. That is so good. That's so good. I love this story. And I did not get caught that night. Thank God. Yeah. You got to hold up your end of the deal. It is amazing. It is amazing what the power of adrenaline can do because I ran my ass. I jumped two fences. I was like, oh, hell no, man. Like we were at a friend's house. His parents was out of town and cops show up because because one person was being an ass and decided to go and go pee on the front lawn and one of the neighbors called and that was it. So we're all hauling ass. I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to get confirmed and stop my, uh, stop my St. Augustine waves, (laughs) which didn't really happen. I mean, (laughs) Oh man. Okay. This is a great place to leave it for a minute and then we'll jump right back in. All right. Hey there, if you're one of the fans listening to the show right now on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you took a second to just scroll to the bottom, hit five stars on the ratings, wrote a one to two sentence review. It really helps the show find new listeners, and it means a lot to me because I love getting your feedback. Thanks. All right, everybody, we're back with Arsene. She just told an amazing story about making a deal with God, which got her confirmed. Well, what was your confirmation name? Did you take a confirmation name that was like uh, I did. the patron saint of getting your ass saved? <laughs> <laughs> I did. My confirmation name is Cecilia, the patron saint of singers. Oh, that's very sweet. Look at that. I was, I'm St. Genesius, the patron saint of actors. Look at that. Yeah, I, know. I have a St. Genesius chain. I, I wore a St. Genesius chain for a long time. Yeah. I think I still have it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I kept mine too. Yeah, for sure. So look, you get confirmed. You have a great story about God saving you in that moment. But then from there, it doesn't sound like that led to, you know, a deep re-engagement with Catholicism, although you did end up choosing a Jesuit university, which is where I met you. How did that happen? Um, I only think... I actually initially went to Marquette for uh, broadcast and electronic communications. Oh, yeah, they have a really good department for that. Yeah, exactly. It just happened by chance because I was initially going for journalism, but theater is always was always a home for me. I had been I've been doing theater since I was six or seven. My dad used to play bass in, in like the pit band for musicals. My mom was singing. I often played child roles and stuff at our little community theater on the military base in Germany. So the theater was always a home, and I I wanted to keep my foot in in it because, I mean, at the time, when I was, you know, junior and senior in high school contemplating what the hell I was going to do with my life, of course I would have loved to do theater, but I would have loved to have been an actor. But at that particular time, you know, colorblind casting was not really a thing. And there was only very specific roles for girls who looked like me, especially in Montana. Like that just didn't happen. You know, I, I was I wasn't interested in playing the maid, the whore, or the drug addict. Like that, those were the three. Yes, those were like the three roles that were pretty much left for black women at that t- at that particular time. Colorblind casting was not a common thing, and often. In television, you know, with the exception of the Huxtables and Different Worlds, 
those were the archetypes that were often left for black women in television or in, in that particular room. So I decided, I was like, no, I'm not going to go that way. Maybe I'll, you know, I'll work in a, a newsroom. I'll go for broadcast and, and journalism and stuff like that. But when I went to go and check out Marquette, I decided to go mosey on over to the theater just to check it out. Theater folk are always, always special and and they're just my kind of people. So then what is your, because I, it's clear that spirituality for you is linked in some way to your performance life. Oh, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Yeah, it seems kind of inextricable in some ways, and I want to kind of hear more about that. I mean, you grew up in such a singing, a family that was always singing and performing. And so not only is this just in your blood and a part of your family, it's also this important conduit for connection to community for you as you are constantly traveling and never in one place for more than a, you know, a handful of years at most, I would guess. Right. So what is your spirituality arc as you're going through college? You know, you did the confirmation story. It doesn't necessarily mean that you got back into going to church. Do you have events in your life that maybe they're family events, someone dies or moments of, kind of euphoric experiences in one way or another that start to inform or educate you a little bit or illuminate you a little bit to what spirituality means for you? Oh, absolutely. Where are you at around that time? What's happening to you? So I have to say there's two major events that come to mind that were on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to me questioning God's spirituality and, and that kind of thing. I really questioned God and lost faith heavily during 9-11. 9-11 was nationally horrific, but also 9-11 was a very personal experience for me because my mother was working in the Pentagon at the time. Hmm. That was something that affected me directly. And I, I remember the day like it was yesterday. And for four hours, I've got, you know, the rest of my family calling me, asking me if they've heard from my mom. And I I hadn't, and oh, wow. I'm freaking out. My roommate was the one who called me. I was actually at a doctor's appointment, and I'm on the table. I was like, why are you calling me? And I, I knew something was up because she knew that I had a doctor's appointment, but yes, she was calling my cell phone. A plane just hit the Pentagon, and I was like, oh, shit, I got to go. Wow. In the four hours of not knowing where the hell my mother was, I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. And then the uh, huge sense of relief. When I did finally hear from her, but I remember they let classes out that day and they were holding services. And I know that a couple of other friends who had family in New York and DC, we all went, we all went to mass because we didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. I think we just needed to be together. But I remember being in the cathedral and I was like, this, I don't find this comforting. And while I'm sitting here, freaking out and grieving and having this traumatic experience. I'm looking at those people that are like, hey, there's no classes I'm playing frisbee. And I just remember being like, man, fuck y'all. Like, mm. fuck you. Because because I was upset that, you know, I'm like, no, because they're not affected. They don't understand the gravity of what just happened. And that was very disenfranchising. I'm trying to remember. I'm like, I don't know if I, I would have said that, that I'd, didn't believe in God necessarily, but I sure as hell didn't believe in man. What the hell is the point of 
religion if religion can cause shit like this to happen. I'm like, I read the Quran and that that shit doesn't exist in there. They don't tell people to go bombing things. Like that's not that's not a tenet of Islam. And I have enough Muslim buddies to know better. It's like maybe all of this is complete and utter bullshit because God knows that Catholics have definitely done their fair share of of mess too. I'm definitely I've always been spiritual, but my book of laws as far as Catholicism and that protocol and those rituals were all questioned. I kind of left on that at the altar. So what's the second one? You said there were two. There was two. And so 9-11, that was the one that caused me to question. The one that was very affirming was the show that we did. It was uh, Calderon de la Barca's mm. La Vida Esleño. Mm. The creation story. Yeah, life is a dream. Life is a dream. And I played man's understanding. And mm-hmm. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about spirituality and religion as as it relates to man and how the difference between your ego and your superego of, of being able to understand what this is. God became a very different thing for me. When you're growing up Catholic, God is this big thing in the sky that is untouchable that you're supposed to aspire to it's this thing that's far far away that we're all supposed to look up to we're all looking up to the heavens right when i did that show i was like oh we don't have to look into the heavens to know what is divine if we're supposed to be of divine material all we have to do is look into ourselves it rebuilt the whole construct it broke up the linear understanding of God, like, well, God is here, and then there's the angels in heaven, and and there's heaven and hell, and blah, blah, blah. It's like hell is supposed to be this thing that deep in the core of the earth, and the devil sits with his fire, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, that's not what it's about, actually. (laughs) It became a very, no, the devil is actually in all of us. All of us have the ability to turn to evil. That whole trope of, oh, well, if you're really good, then you get to go to heaven. Well, wait a minute. So we're all supposed to be sitting here and working on what our possibility is supposed to be in the afterlife that we don't focus on what the present is? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and then that was a really important part in our story because, of course, I was in that play too. And it was with Father Drance, who is this deeply artistic dancer, choreographer, actor, has been working in New York for many, many years. He is a priest and came to Marquette. He actually did essentially a residency with us, did that play. And we brought that play to New York to perform St. John the Divine, right? Yes, we did that play at St. John the Divine. That was, it was an amazing summer. It was a really extraordinary experience for all of us because it was a direct representation of someone who had devoted their life to Christianity to the point that he was a priest and was also living deeply in the culture as an artist. Yes. And so it allowed for us to start blurring some of those lines that maybe as we were growing up felt a little bit too stark. Oh, absolutely. All right, this feels like a really good place to take our last break. And we will be back with the final segment with Arsene in just a couple minutes. By the way, God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. (music) 
All right, everybody, we're back with Arsene. So we're going to kind of fast forward through the Los Angeles years, but I, I want to go right to the end of them when you and I, I remember having, and I'm sure that I wasn't the only person you were talking to, but I remember having some really big conversations with you about how you were struggling to decide whether or not you should go back to New Orleans or if you should stay in LA, just the, the difficulty of making some of these major adult decisions where you end up leaving a group of friends that you'd been cultivating in LA. We have a lot of close friends here, but there was something pulling you. And one thing I wanted to mention was you were already having a lot of success, at least in an artistic sense, a creative sense, doing New Orleans style singing and music here in Los Angeles at a place called the Fado Do. And it seemed kind of like a natural transition for you to go back to New Orleans in that way, especially with your family there. And I guess my question is, what do you think you were really looking for? And did you find it when you got there? Yeah, I did. I think that I think that I had gotten to a point where the artistic journey that we often take, in the beginning, we're often mimicking the people that we like because there's something in them that we connect to. But as you grow in the craft, you come into your own style, your own voice. And I went to L.A. to join the rat race, to go and play, to go play in the big leagues. And the, the beautiful thing, and, and I love L.A. because L.A. was the trenches. I felt like I was forged there. I learned so much about the business of the show. I will always cherish the years that I had there the relationships that were forged in those fires and the ones that were fortified because I I mean, our whole crew, we all knew each other beforehand. And the beautiful thing about that was having that circle of friends that the home team, as I used to call us, we always found a way to get together to celebrate everyone's wins and everyone's losses. And there was a really, there's a really strong sense of community in a place where to find community has to be a very active act. You know, in Los Angeles, in LA, I could live within a one or two block radius of people and never see them unless you make the effort to actually do it. Like you don't often run into people. Sure, you can run into people at auditions on occasion. But I mean, at the time, I was also there during the writer's strike and that was, those were some tough times. Yeah, yeah. Those were some tough times for all of us. But one thing that I, I was missing that I, I always love about home, about New Orleans, is that you always run into people. There's people <laughs> there's people who I rarely ever saw in L.A. who I would run into in New Orleans on a regular basis. <laughs> and it's like, man, we always run into each other here. But because New Orleans lends itself to that, it always does. And I think that... You know, when we had those conversations, I had been going back and forth to and from New Orleans. And the thing is, is that when I come back, I was coming back here because I was getting gigs. I was singing. I was performing on a regular and having these like amazing and financially fruitful trips where I'm coming here and working and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Because right. like I know I'm supposed to be. I know that that's my job. My job is to be a performer, whether I'm singing, whether I'm acting, it is to be reminding humans of their humanity. That is, that's why I do this. Like that, that is my mission statement right there. I do this so that I can remind each of us about our humanity so that we stay connected. But 
I felt myself coming back to LA and the thing is that the, the LA hustle was becoming a bit exhausting because it's like, yeah, I can have all of these great music gigs and stuff and occasionally book this, this, and this, but I still had to have all these side hustles that I really got to a point where I'm like, I don't, I'm tired of this. And yeah. on top of that, financially, it's like you're in this holding pattern. I just couldn't get ahead. And I was in my early 30s at the time, and I'm like, I know where I want to be. You know, eventually, I'd like to, I'd like to have my own place, and I'd like to not to have to, you know, break my neck to do so. Right. I mean, for a long time, I really, I was really set on putting roots down in Los Angeles. But, you know, the thing is, is that I came home, and the work was here, and the culture lends itself to being inclusive. If I were to go to one of my friend's shows in L.A., it's like, this is their show. They're going to show you what they've been working on, what they're doing. It's their show, bruh. And in New Orleans, I would show up to friends, gigs and stuff like that. And they were like, oh, come sit in. Right. Our sense here. Shit, get her up on stage. They're like, oh, my gosh, yes. Come play with us. Yeah. Come play with us. Come, come make music with us. And... That is a beautiful community to be of and to be in. And not only that, there was, um, you know, my mother, my grandmother was getting up there in years and I had been gone long enough that it, I think it's time to, to get a little bit closer. And, you know, on the personal end, I was, I was able to have a good two and a half years with my grandmother before she passed. And I was able to be around my family in a way that I hadn't been in a very, very, very long time. So that part was beautiful. But also, art, on the artistic end of it, what was going on in, in uh, Los Angeles, yeah, I was, in a, I was singing in a band that was touted as like New Orleans rock and roll, blah, blah, blah. They, they, were, they were selling the New Orleans shtick. And it was a shtick. Because in all honesty, the only person who was from New Orleans was my ass anyway. <laughs> yeah. And It was still fun, though. Like, it was, oh, and it was great to see blast. you. I had a blast. And I love, like, I mean, to this day, I mean, my dear friend Antoine moved down here. And I mean, we had a project together for the last six years. And we finally made an album. We made a jazz album that was supposed to be released for French Quarter Fest this year. But uh, mm. no thanks to goddamn coronavirus, you piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So now, let it out, Arsene. Let it out. <laughs> or, or yeah, motherfuckers. They're contemplating releasing it this summer anyway because the music on it is very timely and the songs that we chose are very topical and I think necessary to hear regarding the shit that's going on right now. So we're in the processes of, of trying to get that that part done. So what does it mean to you to be with your family in one place. I mean, Los Angeles was probably the first time you ever stayed in one place for that long. And now what's it like kind of knowing now that probably for the first time in your life, it's not that you won't travel, it's not that you won't tour, but probably for the first time in your life, you know you're like, this is your home, right? Oh, it's, yeah. New Orleans now will always be home base for you. Oh yeah, no doubt. What is it like for you it feels like what I keep hearing from you. If I was to boil down your story, it would be the search for a sustainable, loving, artistic community that kind of can stay 
that feels vibrant, but also feels dependable. You had the dependability in Los Angeles, but you didn't really have the vibrance at the level. You weren't free enough financially because financially it's so hard to live here. And now you have both the vibrance of your creative life, you have the love of the family and community there, and you have the sustainability there because you can afford where you live. Does that feel right to you? And what is it like for you that you have that now? Oh, it's it's glorious. It's, in all honesty, like, it's the, that's the way I want to live my life. It's the way that I want to live my life in the present because I have been taught time and time again, sometimes in very brutal terms, that none of us are promised tomorrow. I mean, it was it was a hard thing. I, I, I'll never forget. I mean, I, I definitely cried when I left Los Angeles because there was a certain part of me that felt like I had failed. Mm. Part of me felt like I had failed because... I hate because that feeling. Angeles, it's, so, it's so pervasive, that damn feeling of failure. It, it, it totally is. It doesn't matter who you are, you have the temptation to feel that. Yeah, no, it, you totally understand. There was a song on my first record called Chasing Dreams. And the chorus is, stars are shining down in Hollywood, boots are worn from chasing dreams. For all the times I felt you so close, only to turn around and watch you shoot across the sky so far out of reach. Hmm. That's what it felt like at that time. I, I, I wrote that too, maybe about two or three months before I decided I was going to just go and try and be home for a month. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Like, no, bitch, I'm going home. But the thing is, is that Los Angeles taught me how to fight. It taught me how to fight and how to never ask for less. But New Orleans, the community taught me how to be me. In LA, I have a lot of loyal followers and lovely, lovely folk who followed me and who supported me. But I was still one person getting her one or two songs to shine in a three-hour show. And when I came home, it's like, no, I was the boss. I had my own voice. I had my own stuff. And when I came out with my first solo record here, it was like, oh, this is mine. This is my, I grew. This was my progression in my craft. Now I get to have a say. And now I, I have a story to tell. And so that's really the biggest thing as far as like spirituality and craft wise, because I, I, I hold them, they, they go hand in hand for me. I, I came home. I'm close to my family. I feel connected to my ancestors, which is really where a lot of my spirituality has like shifted focus to. It, it's no longer, you know, me going and finding churches on Sundays, but more often than not, it's me lighting the candles on my ancestor altar and and honoring all of those people because, well, my ancestors are pretty freaking amazing too because they were, you know, major stalwarts here in the cities. And to honor them is, that's where my spirituality has turned. Mm. It's not so much about this God outside, but it's also about honoring all of the people who who came and did all of those things before me that are now, that's the sum of who I am. It's so funny because every place has 
they're kind of tourist kitsch about it, but there's this underlying truth to it. One of the things about the magic of New Orleans are there are these spirits, right? Where there's like ghosts and there's the kind of celebrating the dead and the there's this feeling of, it just feels like you're living with souls there around you. And that's part of the kitsch that we're selling when you sell New Orleans a little bit. Come here and live around the the graveyards, you know, the cemeteries and all this stuff. But then what you're talking about is you've got an ancestor altar. That's the reality of that there, that there's something about, there's something about the dead being alive there that feels different than in a lot of other cities in the United States. It feels like a town that's able to maintain some sort of roots to the old world in a way that, that it others aren't. It absolutely does. No, it, and it absolutely does. That also is heavily linked with our African and Caribbean ancestry. Yes. Because, and that's the other thing, you know, yes, I, I have an ancestor altar, but think about it in this manner. The fact that I, I'm a 13th generation New Orleanian. I can trace my family line back to the beginning of the city. Mm. There are not too many Black Americans who can actually do that, who can who can trace whatever their ancestry is, even that far. Wow, that's so true. Think about that. It's like, so there's definitely a lot of weight to that because for me to be able to trace my family lineage, 13 generations, that is a privilege. It's yeah. a privilege that a lot of my kids do not have. So I feel, I do feel a sense of obligation in knowing who those ancestors are and what their stories are, because so many of them, I'm born of, of a lot of fighters and civil rights leaders and people who did big things. And the thing is, is that those fights are still going on. And so I feel like it is my obligation to know that and to tell those stories because we still have a whole hell of a lot of work to do as a country yeah. in that lane alone. And this, remember, this is also a port of entry. There are a lot of souls. There's a lot of souls that are still sticking around because their stories need to be told too. I do believe that. Mm, I like that. Okay, this is where I get to ask you my, my closing question, okay? Okay. What makes you despair and what gives you hope? Oh, good God. <laughs> really, Nikki? I love it. And it's like, it's like such a, it's like, it has a roteness to it, but most of the time I get that amazing like grunt sigh after I ask it. <laughs> I love it. Damn it, Nikki. All right. All right. Do your so best. what makes me despair, huh? Do your best. I, I, will, I will do my best. That's all I can do. What makes me despair? Oh, God, how do I put it? Willful stupidity mm. makes me despair. Because willful stupidity, to me, is worse than evil. It's worse than evil because if someone's just being evil but can also comprehend, you know, facts, it's like, okay, we're on the same page, but you're just deciding to be the deuce novel here. Okay, fine. 
I can live with that. But the the willful like willful ignorance has caused so much destruction and so much heartache, and it causes my blood pressure to go up so much. Mm. I mean, and that can be applied on so many different, (laughs) so many different planes, especially these days. That's, that makes me despair because it's like, man, and, and, and to, tr- to attempt to reason with it is a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that it's not something that you can change or reason, it causes me despair because I'm helpless. It's like, well, I can't do anything. And they won't. Mm-hmm. So now what? So there's that. Um, uh, hope. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That, that's a tough one to answer these days, I swear. Mm. But let me think. You know what? Um, community. Community gives me hope. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's, it's kind of hard to, I guess, put it in big concept terms, but like, so when this all started to happen, before we realized just how bad this pandemic um, is, well, this pandemic has been exceptionally shitty for me because I've lost a lot of people. I've lost um, a lot of mentors. I've lost elders. Oh, man. I've you mean just in your community? Comrades. In, in, in New Orleans? Yes. Oh. I've lost my community. These were, you know, not only people who... These are great trees that have fallen, but they were also my friends. These were people that I, that I broke bread with on a regular basis. And not only have I lost them, there was no ritual of saying goodbye. There's no closure because we can't even celebrate their life the way that we do. There are no second lines. We cannot gather for a funeral. We cannot have those moments of closure and we can't send them, or as we say here, like we can't send them home properly. Mm. You know, we can't bid them farewell on their journey to cross over. And that's, that's been, that has been extraordinarily heartbreaking to, to deal like, and, and I'm, I'm still learning. I am, I am, I am having to go back to the classroom to figure out how to exist in a perpetual state of grief right now. But even in that community does give me hope because there are good people out there. Tribe always comes together. Tribe always checks in. Tribe will support each other. Um, So in the midst of all of everything that I just said, I also was grieving the loss of, of 32 gigs in a European tour that was all supposed to come up. Like I, and, and this is all, this is all stuff that I've booked myself. Like I don't have a manager or anything. I manage myself. These are, these are all gigs that were fought hard for and won by myself. Um, but not only that, like I'm, I'm a working musician and I'm like, how in the hell I, I deal in the business of crowds. I deal in the business of 
this communal ritual of getting together and listening to live music and right. hearing live music. I mean, yes, I do pay my bills that way too, but there's something that's greater than the monetary award of that because I've been home now for, for a while and the best times, the best stories and, and the stories where when people come up to me and tell me how that evening or that moment changed them. If it was that one moment, like if they were having the shittiest of days and they came, they just came to listen to live music and I was able to lift their spirits. Or another friend of mine, the day that he lost his dad, he was just feeling lost. Uh, he came and sat, sat down one of the places I was performing and I gave them comfort. Mm. And not only that, like I can see it too. It's like I can see when somebody's down and I come in and it's like, I'll choose a song that I know might touch on that. So that they know that they're not alone. You can watch the change happen. That's the kind of thing that gives me hope. And even in the midst of losing all of those gigs, I started streaming online, which is a different, it's a different medium. It's a whole different ball game. It's a different kind of energy. It's actually quite exhausting. Hmm. because instead of this even exchange of energy going from the people who are listening and who are taking the music into, to me, you know. Like right, they clap, they cheer, you see their smiles, they, you exactly. hear their reactions, that, they sing along that with thing you. That happens to us, it's that empathetic thing that happens to us when we sit and we watch live theater and we hear a play or we go to a concert and it's <laughs> like, I did this show, this is during carnival season, um, with Honey Island Swamp Band, and we did The Dark Side of the Swamp. We went and, like, did a whole cover show of Pink Floyd tunes. Hmm. And the best thing about that show for me was, at certain points, I mean, all of us on stage are at it full throttle, and the entire audience has their head back with their eyes closed, and they were just like... Is that feeling of like, ah, oh, right? Yeah, locked in. That thing, that thing is what gives me hope because it's like everyone leaves that on a higher vibration. And I miss that. That's something that I, I know that it can exist online because I know there's, you know, there's artists that are doing, you know, home concerts and stuff and people tuning in and, and there's things that are, that are definitely giving people a moment of relief and of pause and stuff like that. So I, I do have, you know, music and, and art gives me hope because I know that through that, anything can be taken on. A, a collective trauma can be processed through such things. Minds can be changed through our, our art forms and through music, through, through the arts. So, that gives me hope and knowing that we will always find a way to do it. That is the thing that gives me hope. Well, that's really good stuff, Arsene. That's good stuff. <laughs> it's a little long-winded, but it's the truth. <laughs> I, um, I really connect with that feeling. One of the saddest things for me in this whole experience is this reality that we cannot bury and honor the people that we love when they die. And you telling me about the second line and the way 
the pageantry and the ceremony and the celebration that comes along with the New Orleanian way of shepherding that crossover of the spirit that really hit home. I have already been feeling that and I feel really, I just feel like it's a wretched aspect of this experience that we're living in right now. But I had kind of, I hadn't taken into account what that means in a place like New Orleans where it's such a beautiful community celebration to be a part of those things and that you can't do that anymore. Ugh, that's hard. That's hard. I look yeah. forward to the day when that's back, man. Oof. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. Arsene, I love you. I love you too, bro. Anytime. Well, don't hang up on me. We're going to talk, but I got to say goodbye to the show, okay? Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you all for listening. Well, I don't need to, I, this is a habit I need to break myself of, Arsene. I talk for too long right after I say I'm going to go to break. So I'm going to restart this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Nah, this moment will probably be the Easter egg. This is ridiculous. How often do I? <laughs> yeah, no shit. Shut up, Nick. All right, everybody. <laughs>